Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there's a table of contents in the front. Um, There should be Bibles under one of the seats near you. If you're kind of just coming and checking out Christianity this morning, we're just glad that you're here. And there's a bookshelf in the foyer that has Bibles and other Christian resources back there. Please pick up anything that's of interest to you. We're just really glad that you are here this morning. So we're going to be looking at the passage at the end of Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12 this morning, running through the end of the chapter. And as Stephen reminded us, last week we looked at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and how there's this strong pull in all of us to look at our situations and circumstances that will seek to pull us away from our relationship with God when we don't see exactly how God's working out his plan and his purpose in life. And as we look around at the brokenness of this world, we often wonder, God, why aren't you coming through in a more powerful way in this world? So let me ask you a question. What does your vision of a perfect human society look like? And what would be needed to bring that society to reality in this world. I think there's a universal longing in all of us for what has variously been called utopia, right? That we're going to try and create a society that is just wonderful. And periodically throughout history, people have attempted to achieve this utopia in this world We talked last week about last century being the bloodiest century in history, but the paradoxical thing about that was that the intention was not to make it the bloodiest century, the the intention was to bring utopia into this world. And whether that's through a Marxist perspective or some other perspective, the idea is we want to bring this into life. And after the Enlightenment, this desire for utopia and this sense that, you know what, man's reason and man's intellect will be able to bring about advances in knowledge, advances in science, and advances in technology, and and that's going to bring the perfect society to bear, right? Well, how has that worked out, right? With every nuclear power plant that creates energy, there's nuclear bombs that are created that will destroy life. And then we're living in what's called postmodern times or post-enlightenment where this idea that reason is going to bring us to this utopia, that's kind of fallen apart as we look at history and said, that didn't work out really well. So now there's kind of this, it seems like this echo-driven socialism where, you know, we're going to achieve utopia through just making kind of great legislation that's going to save the planet and, you know, just eliminate intolerance that everyone will be equal right and will have the right echo legislation that, you know, is going to prevent global warming from happening and sooner or later we're just going to live in a utopian society, right? And, and we're just one election or one Supreme Court justice away from achieving that, right? And if we only had that, then we'd be experiencing utopia here. And it's interesting, as you see some people rising in power in that movement, you realize that though they proclaim tolerance, often the new power brokers seem to be as intolerant of any dissent, almost as intolerant as the religious fundamentalists that they loathe 
and abhor, and you realize that if you're on social media, if you dare proclaim something that goes against political correctness in our day and age, you will be immediate, at least canceled, and maybe more will happen there. And so we keep thinking that as human beings, we're going to be able to bring about this ideal society, this ideal government, this ideal, the biblical word be, kingdom that comes into this world. And these longings, they're not just present with us, they're not new to us, but they've been in existence, I think, as long as human beings have walked on this planet. Here is an inscription found in a Roman city, Perina, and this was on Caesar's birthday, and this is what the inscription says. This was found in, or it was found, and it's dated from 9 B.C., Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as savior for both us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good news, the euangelion, the gospel for the world that came by reason of him. Does that sound similar to anything that we read in Scripture? So here's this Roman inscription, 9 BC, that is exalting Caesar as this God, right, that's brought things into creation, and he's going to eliminate war, and he's just so wonderful. He's exceeded even our anticipations or expectations, and it's just going to be wonderful from then on out. Well, how did that work in Roman society? Not so great, right? But that expectation of there's got to be someone or some government or leader that brings utopia into this world was part of the air that those people living in the first century were breathing. And we talked before about this expectation that there was going to come a king or a ruler from this Palestine area, and this was not just among the Jews, but other countries as well, that there's this ruler coming. And that's the kind of cultural situation that Jesus is born into. So let's see what Jesus does right after he comes back from being tempted by the evil one. This is verse 12 of Matthew chapter 4. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Remember he was down kind of in the south part of Judea, right just probably right above the Dead Sea there. And so John, he's arrested. He's arrested by Herod. Um, Even Josephus, the Jewish historian, mentions John and says basically uh, Herod was concerned that all these people going out there for baptism and this situation was going to kind of foment a a religious rebellion. So he has um, John imprisoned, John the Baptist imprisoned. Uh, We get a little more information on that in Scripture that Herod was not only upset about this potential following of John the Baptist, but John the Baptist was speaking out about him having Herodias, his brother, 
Philip's wife and being with her. So John the Baptist becomes persona non grata, and he's arrested. And when that happens, Jesus withdraws into Galilee, probably 60 or 70 miles north he goes to Galilee. And it seems that he started in Nazareth, because verse 13 says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, that passage that we read this morning. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is a reading of God's word. So here Jesus is, and he is going to start his public ministry. And John has just been imprisoned, and so he heads back home. He goes to Nazareth, and you remember the other Gospels let us know kind of his reception in Nazareth. He went to the synagogue. He preached in the synagogue. It was going really well until Jesus intimated that God loves people outside of the Israelite community, naming the Syrian and this other widow that weren't Jews. And as soon as he said that, the people that were loving him got ready to throw him off a cliff. So he realizes probably Nazareth's not the greatest place to start my ministry. So he heads down to Capernaum which is on kind of the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. I've got a picture up here, um, Sue, if you want to put that up, of the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee, it's about 18 miles long and about six miles wide. It sits at about below 850 feet sea level, and it's surrounded um, by, on one side, kind of these high cliffs, the Golan Heights, and it was known for kind of these storms that would come in, and because it was below sea level, there could be some pretty intense storms that popped up really quickly. So Jesus goes to Capernaum. It's a city of about 10,000, archaeologists say at this time, and he begins to start his ministry there. And so what does Matthew say Jesus did from that time, verse 17 Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And if you look at the message of John the Baptist, Matthew, it's exact word for word, the message of John's proclamation and Jesus' proclamation, it's the exact same thing. Jesus is preaching that the kingdom of God literally has come near. It's arrived, it's here, and we see later in the Gospels, Jesus says, if I'm casting out demons by the power of God, the kingdom of God is upon you or among you. And this passage, this little passage we read here, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that was in darkness when the Assyrians came and took the northern kingdom. They pulled them out of this area, and it was an area of darkness. It was closest to the Gentiles, so there was a lot of pagan worship that goes on in this area, and that's the place that Jesus goes to start his ministry. And what does he say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' message was the same as John's message, the kingdom, basically, it's arrived. And if you read just the couple verses from that passage in Isaiah 9, you don't have to turn there, but I'll turn there, and it's just this idea of the reality of something more than just this little bit of light coming into this dark area. It says all these great things are going to happen, or why are they going to happen? That gets to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. This is going to be utopia. This is going to be really, really good. And when we hear peace from the Western perspective, we just think of that as the absence of hostility or war. But for a Jew, peace includes this whole idea of shalom, of wholeness, of, of prospering in every area of life. So what Isaiah is prophesying here is there's one coming. And this one is going to be more than just a king because this one, though he is going to rule the government, he's also going to be mighty God everlasting father and the prince of peace. So when Jesus comes, he announces the kingdom. And so what is a Jew thinking? What's the kingdom that's going to come? He's thinking, well, all this Old Testament prophecy points to the time when there will be a greater son from David that reigns on his throne, and he's going to have that throne forever. And we've seen in Matthew that Matthew takes pains to link Jesus and to recognize that Jesus is the son of David, right? He went through big focus in chapter 1 about making clear that Jesus is the David son to come. And he connects that there. So this king is here, right? But it's also more than just a human king, right? What was the announcement at the baptism? This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. So not only is the king this amazing descendant of David, but he is the very son of God. You remember when the Israelites first wanted a king? And what does Samuel say? He's like, no. no and, and God's like, yeah, they want a king. Why did they want a king? They wanted a king to be just like all the other nations, right? And so Samuel, the Lord says, you know, it's not going to go really well. You know, the kings, they're going to take your sons and conscript them into armed forces. They're going to tax you like crazy. It's not going to be really great. But the people are like, no, 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 we really want a king like the other nations. 
And Samuel was really upset, and he said, you know what? The Lord says to Samuel, that they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as their king. From the very beginning, human beings, I think, were designed to rule and reign with God the Father, all the way back in the garden, right? The first time we hear about ruling and reigning, it's to Adam and Eve. They're going to rule over this creation and to subdue it and to use all the resources God has provided in this creation to bring the garden throughout the rest of the world. And how well did that go? Not really well, right? So then God picks a people, the people of Abraham, and he says, I'm going to use these people to transform the world, right? And we saw in Exodus how you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to bring my message to all the nations. How well did that work? Not really well. And they said, well, there's going to be one king, and he's going to be this amazing king, and maybe our hope is in him. And so David's the king, and he has a, a season where things are going really, really, really well. But then when he should have been out with his men in battle, he sees a woman on a rooftop, and we know how that ends in adultery and then the murder of her husband. And then we see how he handles Amnon's sin, and then there's just disaster in his household. He multiplies wide, and, just, and it gets worse. And then Solomon comes in, and you're thinking, well, maybe this is great, but Solomon's got a whole lot of issues. And then after Solomon, the kingdom splits up. And then from that point in time, it seems like the kingdom, there were a few good kings, but mixed in, it was a disaster, and the people of God end up in Babylon in exile, right? Yet the prophets all the time have this hope that yet there's still hope. There's going to be one come that comes that restores the people of Israel to their place, gathers them in, and not only the people of Israel, but there's prophecies about all the nations coming as well. Read Psalm 67. It's this beautiful picture of all the nations coming to worship, but so far that has not happened. So when this guy from Nazareth comes to town and he says, hey, the kingdom of God is here. The people are pretty excited. Why? Because everywhere they look, there's a Roman soldier. They realize that they're walking around, and this is not what our nation should be like. And then Jesus comes, and he starts to do some amazing things, and people are like, man, this, this, this one is the Messiah. He's the one that fulfills prophecy, and throughout Matthew, Matthew has been making a point of saying, this fulfills, this fulfills, this fulfills. Jesus was the son of God that went into Egypt and then was taken out of Egypt, passed through the waters of baptism, goes into the desert for 40 days, was tempted. He passed in all these ways that Israel failed miserably. And I think there's even a bigger picture that Jesus is kind of that second Adam and it goes back to the beginning of Matthew. It says this is the genesis of Jesus, the son of David. That takes you back right to the beginning and this is the, the one, this is the human that may reverse all the messed up nature of humans since our first Adam fell and took us all down with him. And so Jesus says repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Turn around, reorient your thinking, recognize that there is a king here now that will change everything. And so for a Jew listening to this, they're super, super hopeful. If you read through Matthew's gospel, the word kingdom appears over 50 times. This is a huge theme in the gospels. Have you ever asked yourself, what gospel did Jesus preach when he went around preaching? 
Did he preach trust in... Oh, he hadn't died yet. So what is he preaching? He's preaching what? That God's king has come. He is here to establish the rule and reign of God in this world right now. And so often I think we have kind of shrunk the gospel to just the gospel of personal salvation, right? That when I trust in Christ, he forgives my sins and then I will have a place with him forever in heaven and it's kind of like, well, what do I do in the meantime? I'm going to heaven eventually, right? But what do I do now? And to me, the gospel of the kingdom is bigger than that. That is included, that gospel of personal salvation, within the gospel of the kingdom. But Jesus coming and declaring the kingdom is at hand is declaring he's restoring all things to where they were. He's going to bring his rule and reign into every part of human life. It's going to be human reboot, right? It's going to be reboot of the people of God. In this passage, we see Jesus calling four brothers. We know ultimately that that four turns into 12. Why 12? What does Jesus say? This is the new nation of Israel. This is the new people of God. And it's pretty unique that Jesus does not include himself in that 12. I'm distinct. I'm different from those. But these are the people that I'm going to usher in kind of the reboot of Israel. And so Jesus says the kingdom is come. Origen said that Jesus Christ was auto basilia, the kingdom in person. He has come. He is saying that basically I am king. And at this point in time, not many of his followers realize what that means, right? And so Jesus comes and he says, repent for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom of heaven is Matthew's way. He also uses kingdom of God. The rule and the reign of God is here. It's at hand. And so how does he begin to establish his kingdom on this earth? Like all rulers do, right? He goes for a walk on the beach and he picks four fishermen. It's a really strange way to start your rule and your reign. But I think, you know, this is what we should expect from God doing things that we are not expecting, right? We think, okay, when someone establishes their rule and reign, they want to come in as a political player. What do they do? They go to the place where the movers and the shakers in society are, right? In Israel, that would be what? Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem. He goes to Possum Gulch, West Virginia, and he says, we're going to start the kingdom out here, right? No, that's like what Nazareth says. That's the sticks. That's the boonies. You don't go there to start the rule and reign of your kingdom, that's craziness. This is out in the sticks. It's in Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. This is not even the place that's associated so much with Israel. Yes, there were Jews in this area, but it was a mixed area, and it's like this is a strange way to start your kingdom, Jesus. This whole area, the, the Galilee area's population of about 300,000 about 200 villages or towns in this area, and Jesus says, this is where I'm going. Why? Because Isaiah said, this is where the light is going to dawn. And I love it that Jesus brings his light and maybe into one of the darkest places in the country at that point in time. There was a lot of syncretism with pagan religions and stuff going on in this area, and that's where Jesus said, this is, this is where I'm going to start. This is the hardest place. 
And I love that. God tends to work with the hardest cases, right? <laughs> Just to show that his power is present and evident there. And then he calls four fishermen. Again, they're not the movers and shakers. They're not the generals. They're not the ones with control over the military at this point in time. If you're going to establish a kingdom, you've got to come in with some military power, heavy and hard, right? You're going to take down the current leaders and you're going to establish yourself. And Jesus doesn't do any of that. He comes and Matthew tells us he walks by the Sea of Galilee and he sees two brothers, Simon and Andrew, casting a net into a sea. And this net was probably a a circular net casting. It was about 20 feet across with lead weights around. He'd throw it out and it'd sink to the bottom and then you'd pull it up and bring the, the fish in that were in that net. And they're fishing. And he says to them, follow me. And Matthew says immediately they left their nets and followed him. He chooses not the politically powerful not the religiously powerful, but just ordinary people to start his kingdom in this world. And they probably weren't dirt poor. They had fishing boats, right? They had a business. The lake or the Sea of Galilee was a prosperous fishing area. But Jesus comes to them and he says, follow me. And it's more than just an invitation. It's almost a command. <laughs> Come on. And we read this, and it's like, wow. Out of nowhere, Jesus appears, and he says, follow me. And they're just like, we're ready to go. But you need a little bit of the backstory. This was not the first time that these guys encountered Jesus. The other Gospels tell us that Andrew was one of John the Baptist's disciples. And when John baptized Jesus and then says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, Andrew goes and finds Peter and says, Man, I think we found the guy. And he brings him. And the other Gospels let us know that James and John and Andrew and, and Simon or Peter are in partnership with one another. They've got a little LLC corporation on the shores in Capernaum and they're fishing together as partners, right? And there's a whole period of time, and we don't know how long time passes, but the beginning of John, there's divided up basically three years of Jesus' ministry. The first year is called the year of obscurity, which Matthew doesn't talk a lot about. The other Gospels mention that. And then we've got the year of popularity and then the year of rejection. But in that year of obscurity, probably all of these guys had encountered Jesus Christ. They were at the wedding in Cana of Galilee where Jesus turned water into wine and the other gospel tells us that at this stage Jesus had grabbed Peter and said hey can I use your boat I want to preach a little message there are too many people he goes out into the water and and he preaches the message and you know Peter had been fishing all night was tired and Jesus says hey man why don't you go out and do a little bit more fishing Bill's a fisherman. I, I fished on freshwater, so if I need advice, I don't you know, look to myself like, Bill, how do I fish here? Peter knew, you don't catch any fish in the day, right? It's not the time. But Jesus, because you're Jesus, I'm going to go put out. And then what happened? They caught so many fishes that their boats were sinking. Uh, there's been an archaeological discovery of a boat that was from this age. Sue, do you want to put that up there? So that's kind of the the hull of the boat there, it's about 26 feet long, and then they've recreated it in the next slide. 
So, uh, so you want to put that one in. So that's probably uh, what the boat looked like. And so uh, these guys are fishermen. They're used to doing this. And then Jesus says, hey, thanks for letting me use your boat. Why don't you go out and fish a little bit? And, and Peter sees all these fish, and what does he say? Get away from me, Jesus, because I'm a sinful man. And so Peter at least recognizes that he was not where he needed to be. And we don't know how much he'd heard of John the Baptist's message. To me, it's interesting that John the Baptist is the one that's to prepare the way for Jesus. And we know at least Andrew was one of his disciples. The other one that's not mentioned in the other gospel is probably John. So they had influence. We were also told that tax collectors went out to hear John the Baptist. And I'm wondering if Matthew was out there, that these guys... Their conscience is already beginning to work on them. They're they're already thinking, man, is there something more to this life than just fishing? And so they hung around with Jesus for a little bit, but then we don't know why they're they're back to fishing. And then Jesus shows up where they are, and he walks along the beach, and he says, hey, guys, follow me. And immediately they follow him. Again, to me, you look at Jesus and his graciousness in dealing with people in life. And whether it was through John the Baptist or through his preaching that he'd done before, he had prepared these guys' hearts. And then he finally shows up and he says, follow me. And what do they do? They immediately follow him. And I think there's often that stage that gets set by God in our lives where we have to make a decision. It's fish or follow time, right? It's something that we recognize, man, I've got to make a decision now. The Lord is calling me, and this is the point where I either keep doing what I'm doing, I've already heard enough about Jesus, I've seen what he's done, but now I have to make a decision. Am I really going to follow him? And as we look at this, we recognize what Jesus is saying. The kingdom is here. I am the king, right? So to follow means you follow. And it's interesting that most teachers in that day, they would not call students, but students would go to them to be their disciples, right? And here we have Jesus turning that around. And he goes to these four guys and says, follow me. And there's risk in that, isn't there? When you follow Jesus, when you say, Jesus, you are my king, and, and when we follow Jesus, if it's really King Jesus we're following to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's not three parts of his name, but he's master, he's the God who saves, but he's also the Christ, the anointed one, the king that's been prophesied all throughout scripture. He's the one that we're called to trust in and to follow and to recognize that that's often a really hard thing for us to do. And they were back at their boats, and their fishing was, that this is what we do. And Jesus says, no, I've got something new for you to do. I'm going to make you fisher of men. And I don't even know if they had a clue about what that meant at that point in time. But the beautiful thing about Jesus, like, you're just ordinary fishermen, right? You're just ordinary Joes, right? And I'm going to be the one that makes you fishers of men. It's not dependent on you, right? It's dependent on what Jesus will do in them to make them who he wants them to be. 
And so often when we hear the call from God, it says, follow me. We're like, well, I don't have, I'm not like, I can't. Uh. And Jesus says, I will make you into what I'm calling you to be. But are you willing to follow me? And that means leaving something usually. Leaving the way we were going. For me, when that call came, I was like, okay, Brett, are you going to follow me? Are you going to keep following a relationship? Are you wanting to determine what your future looks like? Are you willing to trust me and follow me? And I'm like, well, okay, let me know exactly what that means. And he says, eh, <laughs> you don't begin to know what that means, but I'm asking you to trust and to follow. Are you willing to acknowledge that I'm the king? And when the king comes and he asks you, you don't say, well, you know, I like part of what you're saying, king, but that other part I'm not that into, right? No, we come with the acknowledgement that you're the Lord and you're the king. So follow. And so Jesus breaks his kingdom into the world by coming and then by calling some humble fishermen to be his means of bringing his kingdom into the world. And if you look at Matthew 10, we're going to see later on, Jesus sends them out to do the exact same thing that he's doing. Go out and preach the kingdom of God. It's arrived. It's here. You guys go and do what I've been doing. And he says, I'm going to equip you to do that. That's my calling on your life, and I will make it a reality if you will trust in me. So Jesus, amazingly, is bringing in his kingdom through calling human beings to work along with him to follow his lead. But what that, what's that kingdom going to look like? And that's where I think we see Matthew kind of fleshing this out a little bit. And I think the whole rest of the Gospel of Matthew explores that. But he goes throughout all Galilee, verse 23, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction of the people. So he's bringing his compassionate ministry of healing to everybody that comes to him. And this lets us know that, man, there's nothing that Jesus faces that he can't heal. Whether it's emotional or physical or spiritual, Jesus is in control. And he may not look like an earthly king, but he has authority that's massive. What did he say to the evil one at the end of the temptation? Get out of here. And what did the evil one do? <laughs> he left, right? He's got the authority to command even those, the highest ranking in the spiritual realm of evil, just get out of here, and they do it. And so Jesus comes and he conquers all those things that are not kingdom-like in this world right now. All the brokenness of the kingdom, and so all these people that are broken are coming to him, and he's healing them, and his fame is spreading everywhere, and he says, this is what the kingdom is going to be like, this proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. Matthew uses that word four times, and three times that good news, or the evangel of the kingdom of God. That's what is good news. And so what does that kingdom look like? Part of that kingdom looks like Jesus bringing healing and hope. But he also teaches and proclaims, and usually teaching is more for people that have a little bit of a clue what's going on. Proclamation is to those that don't yet know anything, but Jesus does, does both. 
Well, what did he teach? What is this gospel of the kingdom? And I think we see it right after. What happens immediately after this? We have what's called the Sermon on the Mount, what Matthew would probably call the gospel of the kingdom. Because what does it say, verse 1 of chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to them, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You don't want to know what the kingdom of heaven involves. This is my teaching on what that is. And if you've got a red-letter Bible, Matthew 5 through 7, it's pretty red, right? It's all Jesus teaching about that kingdom, right? And then you look at Matthew 8 and 9, and it's all these amazing deeds that Jesus is doing. And throughout that, there's one thing that King Jesus establishes is his authority, right? After the Sermon on the Mount, what do the people say? Man, this guy is just like all the other teachers we hear all the time. No, it's like, this Jesus is different. He teaches as what? As one with authority, right? Remember the story of the disciples in the boat and the storms there. And Jesus, they're freaking out and they're fishermen. They've been out in this lake. They know what goes on here. And they're really upset and they're stressed out. And Jesus calms the storm with a word. It literally, he rebuked the storm and everything becomes Calm and quiet, like, whoa, who is this guy? There's a bigger dimension to Jesus' power and his reign than we would expect at this point in time. We think political power. Jesus has got to go in and he's got to make political inroads, or he's got to make military inroads to bring his kingdom. And Jesus brings his kingdom in a really upside down, crazy way. And he outlines that in Matthew 5 through 7. Then he demonstrates it by his deeds and bringing healing in Matthew 8 and 9. And it's interesting. Matthew, I think, gives us a clue that this is kind of the structure that he's following. If you look at 9.35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the synagogues and all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Most scholars think that's a bookend, right? He starts with that message and then he ends with that message. So this is all about this gospel message of the kingdom and what it looks like when Jesus brings the kingdom into this world, both in what he teaches and what he does. And so this is King Jesus. And as we go through this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to be an equal opportunity offender. All of us are going to be hit by something in there that we just do not like. Like the disciples said, man, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I, I really don't like what you're saying here, Jesus. Yeah, I'm all about the social justice and that good stuff, but don't start to get in my business about how my sex life is and all those kind of things, you know, or how I'm handling my finances or how I'm dealing with the resentment and anger I have towards that. Don't. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm, I'm going there. And he goes there not to destroy us, but to make us the kind of people that he has designed us at the beginning to be like. He says, this is the kingdom. This is what true humanity is supposed to look like. And yes, it is going to rub you wrong because all of us are broken and fallen. And then the question we have at that time, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? We're either going to walk away like a lot of other disciples. I'm not into that. 
And we say, okay, you're my king, and I don't know how this makes sense in this broken world, but I'm going to follow you and trust that this is the way that I will be most content, most at peace, most successful as the human being that you're trying to make me into. Because you know what? You're my king. You're the ruler of all things. And you're the one that has come into this world right now. And as theologians talk about the kingdom, there's a sense of it's, it's present here now, but it's not yet here, right? It's been inaugurated, but it hasn't been fully consummated yet. It's the sense of, yeah, the kingdom has broken in, and we see a preview here of what Jesus is doing, these amazing things, but then there's still a whole lot of brokenness that's going on, right? And what does he have his disciples pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That right now that kingdom has started, but it has not fully come. And the amazing thing is that he calls us to be part of that kingdom breaking into this world. Through our being different people, and when people reach out in anger towards us, we don't smack their cheek, we take that insult, and we're gentle and we're kind. And we realize, man, when everybody else is saying, man, your life does consist in how much you have. How big's your house? How big's your salary? How fast is your car? All those kind of things is that that's, man's life consists in the abundance of his possessions, right? And Jesus will say, man, you cannot serve both God and money. Ow. I can. I bet I'll be the first one in all of history that'll be able to, to trust me in this, Jesus. Right, And so he, he comes at all those things in our lives that we substitute for him being our king and say, no, I'm going to trust you, Jesus. That it's more blessed to give than to receive and it's not all about me. And I think that's one of the reasons that, to me, it's important to grasp that the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom is bigger than the gospel of just individual salvation. That's part of it. But if it's just the gospel of individual salvation, it's still, what, mostly about us. And how Jesus loves me, and he does love me. But you know what? He's a lot bigger than that. He's the king of all. He has created this whole thing and he's in this process of restoring everything. And that's our destiny. But in the meantime, we need to walk with him and follow him. That was the pattern for disciples of rabbis. They would literally walk behind their rabbi and there was a saying, oh, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. He's walking ahead and it just accumulates on you. So King Jesus is coming and he's saying, I'm here. My kingdom's arrived and I'm going to flesh that out for you in what I teach and through what I do. Are you willing to follow me? It's a choice that we all have to make. And Jesus doesn't twist our arms. And I don't know where you are this morning. Some of you may be in that process of, I'm not even sure who this Jesus guy is. Good, investigate, dig, who is this Jesus but I think all of us come to that point where we have to face that choice, am I going to fish or am I going to follow? Am I going to hold on to those things in my life that I find security in or am I going to be willing to do that hard thing of trusting Jesus even though I don't know exactly where this is going to lead but to recognize, you know what, he's my king but he's also my father and he's a good, good father. He is God and he's bringing his kingdom into this world and he's calling us to be a part of that bringing of his kingdom into this world. But one day all that is going to work out when he returns again. But now we have this opportunity to follow by choice. One day every knee 
will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Jesus, your king, your master, your Lord. You are the one that has run everything. And he gives us the opportunity now to make that choice to follow him and to recognize that when we do that, that is the path to our best life. And there's going to be times where we scratch our heads like, what in the world are you doing, King Jesus? And I don't even like this, King Jesus. And he experienced that with his following of the Father, right out into the desert. The Holy Spirit led him there, and there was trials, and there was difficulties, and his flesh was screaming, and the Father saying, no, hold off, hold off, trust me. I've got this. It's risky, right? In one sense, from our perspective. But I think it's the safest place we can be is following behind our king. Learning from him what he's called us to be as human beings. He's the second Adam. He's the one that fleshes out. This is what man was designed to be. And the beauty of this is when the Israelites wanted a human king, right? They rejected God as their king, and when Christ returns, he returns as what? Fully human, fully divine, the Son of God and the King, hopefully, of your life and of my life. Nobody can make that decision for you. To trust God, to lead your life to what truly is life. And to follow his words, even when those words are hard to, uh, for us to accept and to say, no, you're my king, you're my designer, you're the one that created me, I'm willing to follow you, lead away. And when we do that, usually it's going to require leaving something. And then we have these fishermen, they left their nets. We know that James and John even left their father, Zebedee, in the boat. Later on, we know that Peter's still got a house and they've got a boat that they go around in. So it's like, okay, they've still got some possessions, but I think Jesus is going to leave everything and months just follow, give it all to me. And whether I give it back to you or I don't give it back to you, let me determine that, but follow me where I'm going to lead you because that's going to be the best way. So, walking by the Sea of Galilee, as all major rulers of the world do, starting his kingdom with that call, follow me. Are we willing? Let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you and so often we don't treat you as our sovereign. We teach you as maybe a teacher that's got some good advice when it aligns with what we kind of already feel like doing. Lord, forgive us. Help us to be willing to follow you and to know, Lord, that if that requires giving up anything, Lord, you're going to repay that in abundance that you've come not to rob us of life but to give us life and that life to the full that life of shalom of deep peace of knowing even in the brokenness of this world that we're yours and that one day you are returning and in the meantime you're calling us to be part of what you're doing and bringing your kingdom into the here and now. Lord, we're not people that just wait for heaven, but we are people that labor 
with your spirit's strength to bring your kingdom to this world here and now. So Lord, help us in this process. If there's anyone here that's wrestling with that decision, I just pray that your spirit would just bring conviction and a willingness to fully surrender. Lord, I know in my own life I walked for a long time not fully surrendering to you. But Lord, you may be calling someone here even this morning right now to make that decision. Even though they know a lot about you, they've never really submitted to you as their king and Lord and master and trusted in you and been willing to follow wherever you may lead. So Lord, help us. We're fickle, we're frail, but Lord, you're not. Thank you that your promise is to make us into the kind of people that we're not. To humanity 2.0 as you have designed us to be. So strengthen us, change us from the inside out so that we can be fully yours and be instruments of your bringing your love and your grace and your peace and your rule and your reign into this very broken world that lacks shalom and peace in so many areas. Lord, thanks for who you are. Thanks for loving people like us. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Stand, if you would, for a closing prayer. This is my favorite prayer. This is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. So pray along with me. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever, and all God's people said, God bless you as you follow your Savior this week.